You're listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. Deepening Your Practice is recorded at the Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society in Los Angeles, California. For more information, visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.mettagroup.org. So welcome everybody, this is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening Your Practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class, and what that really means is that I'm, I'm not going to teach basic uh, meditation. Uh, I expect all of you to already know that. That being said, if you find that I'm talking about something and you don't understand what I'm talking about, I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm just not going to include the basics. We've been going through uh, the Manual of Insight by Mahasi. This is a new translation by the Vipassana Metta Foundation. And we are in the second chapter, which is called Purification of Mind. And uh, we're talking about... um, Here we go. Mental purification for those who take the vehicle of insight to enlightenment. It's page 57. So, in some sense, the, the, when we talk about Mahasi as, as a practice, what we're really talking about is Karnaka Samadhi, momentary concentration. In a, in a, and really, there are two ways to practice in, in this Vipassana. <coughs> One is where you develop concentration first, and then when you've developed concentration, you go into insight practice. And the second way is where you just begin with insight practice, and in the practice of insight, you develop the concentration that's necessary. It's an interesting thing uh, from my perspective as the meditation teacher, how that might work. the, the practical idea of just giving someone an insight technique and telling them to begin to practice it with the understanding that eventually they'll develop enough concentration to, to be able to do the technique itself. Um, I, my teacher, my main teacher for the last uh, 20 years or, or 18 years or so has been Shinzen Young, and he is somebody who just offers you an insight a technique with no instruction at all in concentration, and you, he expects you to develop sufficient concentration. He's also a liberation-oriented teacher, and fully expects you to, to come into stream entry through the, the way that he teaches. This is totally within keeping with the, the Mahasi way of practicing. Mahasi totally sees... Uh, stream entry as a as a option for householders. This is very different from some other approaches that you might have, um, particularly in the West, where householders aren't really thought of as as uh, uh, having the option of stream entry as as the end result of practice. Um, when I began to practice, I was interested in liberation. Uh, I was interested in enlightenment. But uh, I was interested in what I thought enlightenment was, which turned out not actually to have anything to do with enlightenment, but my idea of what enlightenment was was the thing that I wanted, and it motivated me to start practicing, and it also motivated me to find a teacher 
who was oriented around enlightenment. And I went through uh, quite a number of teachers in the beginning, most of them who did not teach that. I couldn't even actually understand from them that my idea of what enlightenment was wasn't what enlightenment was because they were so unfamiliar with that whole way of thinking and teaching about practice. So it was in some sense very relieving to find a teacher who was oriented that way because I could understand uh, pretty quickly that what I thought enlightenment was really didn't uh, represent that at all. So here, when I teach here in a, in, a, in a culture that really largely is not oriented towards this kind of Mahasi-based Burmese style of practice where householders are not really thought to, to be able to have enlightenment, what I find is that there isn't a sufficient level of concentration to do the techniques well enough to develop the concentration to have the insight that you need to have. And the reason that I was successful in doing this with Shinzen as my teacher is that he's a retreat teacher and he only teaches on retreat. And so in the retreat context, the insight uh, leading to the development of enough concentration to be able to do the techniques makes complete sense. But in a uh, meditation center environment where you're not doing multiple retreats a year, this approach may not bear the fruit that it's intended to do unless you have a really robust practice. So the idea then here is to examine how have you organized your practice and are you practicing enough that in going straight into a insight practice will you be practicing enough that your concentration will develop enough that you'll be able to do the technique well enough to develop enough concentration that the technique will result in the insight necessary. Follow me with this well enough. <clears throat> How many retreats do you go on a year? Is it one? Is it two? Is it three? Is it four? So in the beginning of my practice, I was going on three or four retreats a year, and I was zooming along, and, and, uh, and that made uh, a happy level of progress. But I, I can tell you that uh, the, the, that it was much easier to do that 10 or 15 years ago because the economy wasn't as hard as it is now. How many retreats are you going on a year? Are you, if you're not going on retreats, then you're going to have to organize your practice maybe in a different way. And so maybe uh, including some concentration practice it might be a good idea. In in the way that I typically teach the insight practice is to add a short period of concentration-oriented practice at the beginning of each sit, and it doesn't need to be a huge amount. I usually recommend 10 minutes at the beginning of each sit, and I recommend a breath counting if you want to do straight-up Vipassana, a 10-minute period of breath counting, if you add that to the beginning of each sit, is likely to produce enough concentration that you'll then be able to get the benefit out of the, uh, the uh, insight technique that you're doing, whereas just the, the insight technique alone may not. But you'll have to really investigate it for yourself. <clears throat> the polytext examined above make it clear that those who take the vehicle of insight to enlightenment need not develop tranquility in advance in order to purify the mind, 
but they may begin with pure insight. So insight to enlightenment uh, need not develop tranquility. Tranquility is the outcome of concentrating the mind. To purify the mind means that the, there is an absence of hindrances. You're all familiar with the hindrances. So a purified mind means that there's no craving, there's no aversion, there's no restlessness, there's no agitation, there's no sloth, there's no torpor, there's no doubt. That as you place your attention on the object of meditation, the hindrances are absent. The principal em emphasis of this book is to explain precisely this point. How those who take the vehicle of insight to enlightenment practice, uh, that is, how to develop pure insight without a foundation of tranquility concentration. So there is no need to extensively explain mental purification here. So <clears throat> when you say that you're practicing in the Mahasi style, what you're really saying is that you're practicing in the insight into uh, liberation style. And to me, this is really exciting news. <laughs> uh, so if you're willing to say that to me, understand that it's going to be really exciting for me to hear that. <laughs> However, it will be beneficial for those who take the vehicle of insight to enlightenment uh, and develop insight uh, based on momentary concentration to learn something regarding the following points, the Eightfold Liberation and the Eight Hindrances to Liberation and the Six enemies of concentration and the ways of evading them, and the unification of the mind um, and or seclusion from mental defilements. So now we're moving into a way of looking at the very traditional way of practicing, understanding that you don't have to develop uh, access concentration first, you don't have to develop jhana first, that you can develop that through this momentary concentration. One of the reasons why this book was written and one of the reasons uh, why he's so emphatic about this is that this was a revolutionary idea uh, in, in the meditation community. And uh, he felt a great need to advocate for this strenuously because the resistance was so monumental to this idea that momentary concentration was equivalent to a jhana first. Um, and part of this was because of the urgent need to preserve the practice of meditation because of the oppression of the, the uh, uh, Western influence, uh, particularly in Asia, as the, uh, the British were uh, engaged in uh, suppressing the, the nature of practice in in Burma at the time. Even the word Burma is a suppression of, we say the Burmese style, which is a suppression of the Miramese style of meditation. So. <clears throat> liberation and hindrances. The wholesomeness that arises from insight is a cause of liberation for noble ones. Noble ones gain liberation from the cycle of suffering by developing. Attachment or desire is a hindrance to liberation. Uh, when present, it hinders noble one's realization of the wholesomeness that arises from insight and the path to liberation. For this reason, attachment uh, is called a hindrance to liberation. So, attachment in Buddhism is a very specific term, and it means to grab onto or fixate any particular flow of sensing experience. 
So if you look around the room and you see a solid room and you see solid chairs and solid people and you, you hear the sound of my voice as words that have meaning associated to them, then you've attached to all of that. Uh, in some sense, liberation would be the freedom to attach or not attach. But can you at will unattach? Can you at this moment just decide that you're not going to attach to the visual field and have it turn into the flow of colored dots that is actually what you're seeing? Or is the habit energy of fixating so great that you don't have a choice about that? Can you, in this moment, listen to the sound of my voice and simply hear vibrating space and not fixate each one of the vibrations into a word and then associate meaning to them? So when we say liberation from attachment, what we mean, can you hear the sound and not attach meaning to it? And then can you attach to the sound and attach the meaning to them and be free to do either one whenever you want to? So if you can do that, we could then say that you were liberated, and if you cannot do that, then we can say that you're not liberated. <laughs> to the benefit of oh. that, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a cool parlor trick. You can do it, but... Oh, really? You can't see the benefit? <laughs> not really. Um, how's your suffering? <laughs> Moderate. Moderate. <laughs> and if you could do that, you would have none. Okay. Pretty good? Sounds good. <laughs> and then you could fix it again and not fix it. That would be it. Um, as the following verse... Exp- oops. We want that. No. So... <clears throat> inside an attachment. If one does not observe mental and physical phenomena every time they arise in the six sense doors, one cannot realize that there is nothing uh, to them but body and mind. They are conditioned, impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self. As a result, one will develop an attachment to the objects that one fails to observe. If, on the other hand, one observes mental and physical phenomena, the phenomena they observe... uh, Sorry... Uh, If one, on the other hand, uh, observes mental and physical phenomena, the moment they occur, one will realize that there is nothing to them but body and mind, which are conditioned, impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self. As a result, one will be free to attach to the objects that one is able to observe. As a result, one will will be free from attachment to the objects one is able to observe. Thus, the wholesome action of insight liberates one from attachment and thus is considered renunciation. So, in some sense, that's the explanation of how to do what I just said, right? That you see in each sense gate the arising of each of the sensing experiences prior to fixating them. Each of these uh, individual strands of sensing experience then come together to form the complex experience that you have. And in Vipassana, V means to divide and Pasana means to see. You pull apart the individual strands and in holding the strands separately, you're less likely to identify or to to attach to them and you can see the way that you form them. One of the things that's interesting about that is that 
you're capable of forming the world from these individual strands and you're capable of forming the world with huge distortions in it. Have you ever gotten something wrong? <laughs> Would it be nice to know whether or not you're forming something with or without distortion that might be useful? Do you, uh, I often find that um, if I read an email and I'm, I have an, a big emotional response to it, it's better to wait until the big emotional response is passed and reread the email than to frantically type and send a response. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm often surprised by the, the content of the email, which I was so sure about. <laughs> But yet I had formed the world in one way and responded to it in a big emotional way. And I could swear that, that, that the experience of that was warranted by the email and allowing that wave of self to go, that wave of emotion to go, and coming back to it. The email was unchanged, and yet the self that formed then in the second reading of it was quite different than the emotional response. And that oftentimes there's a way of uh, reading language that could mean more than one thing, that one way of reading it resulted in one thought and another way of reading it in another. And so if you can watch the way that the mind attaches and forms the experience of self, and if, if you then were free to let that go and then reattach and watch it form in another way, without such gripping identification, um, that degree of suffering is much, much less. There is very little suffering in non-attachment. Lots and lots of capacity for suffering in attachment. And so if you can come and go whenever you want, there's very little suffering in that. Even in, in strong arisings of, of a sense of self, if you notice a lot of suffering in that, and you can simply dissolve from that, there's very little suffering in that. You can really be present uh, for experience in a way that isn't possible if you get confined to a particular experience of self. Big arising of angry self and you simply let it go and then reform the sense of self in the next moment in a different way to try and be in the experience with, with another person makes it really uh, a much easier way to be in relationship to somebody. When uh, I was having a conversation with a, a, a friend of mine and I said something and she had a huge eruption of self uh, and uh, I didn't have a self response to it and I, I, and I didn't also understand what had made her so angry about but I said so I just asked her what, what made you so angry and it was, then it was an easy conversation but I, if I had felt attacked in my own sense of angry self had arisen, it could have gone a whole different way. So I was totally fine with what I had said that had made her angry because I didn't feel attacked personally in, this, in that experience. But had I felt uh, attacked and then felt the need to defend myself and actually done that, it would have been a <laughs> If you've ever had that experience of defending yourself, and then the, that sense of self passing and you're wondering, what, why did I do that? Anyway. <clears throat> then when we think about practicing meditation, we are worried that 
the little happiness and comfort we enjoy at the present might be destroyed. Did I skip a paragraph? Mm -hmm. I think maybe. Attachment or sensual desire is called a hindrance because it obscures insight practice. We must do uncountable things for the sake of ourselves, our spouses, children, relatives, friends, devotees, supporters, teachers, and so on in order to achieve happiness and comfort in life. These activities are all driven by the desire for happiness and comfort. We constantly seek what we have not yet gained while trying to maintain what we have already gained. Since we must make so much effort to satisfy our desires, we cannot find time for practice and we may not even think of it. And even if we do think about practicing, we may never get around to it. At worst, we remain content to let the mind wander at will and enjoy ourselves saying or doing whatever we please. Then, when we think about practicing meditation, we are worried that the little happiness and comfort we enjoy at present might be destroyed. The end result is that we fail to practice and have no way to enjoy the benefits of insight. Uh, it is impossible to escape the cycle of suffering without insight practice, so it is clear that sensual desire is the source of our bondage. Sensual desire hinders insight practice and presents, prevents us from attaining liberation. Some people cannot practice insight because they want to continue to enjoy sensual pleasures even in their future lives. These are the ways that sensual desire obstructs the path to liberation. It's an interesting question. How much do you practice? And if you don't practice much, what gets in the way of practicing? When I wanted to go on four retreats a year, um, I took a really crappy job where I could just go on four retreats a year. And I thought I would do it for a short period of time, but I ended up doing it for 10 years, which is an interesting dilemma. Um, not, I did get to practice, but it was a kind of strange organization in my mind. Um, and I, I valued that. How do you organize the things that you value in your life? What is it that motivates you? What do you want? What do you think you can get? And where do you place it? Some people don't have much of a daily practice and then every so often they go on a retreat to jumpstart their practice. Some people organize um, their, their daily lives so that they have a period of practice included in it. I tend to think that a daily practice is a good idea, so I've organized my life to have a daily practice. Um, I'm not a, a morning person, but I've organized my life to have a, a daily morning practice. <laughs> <laughs> I have a hard time doing things for myself and a much easier time doing things for people that I feel an obligation to. So I, I started a, a, a morning conference call, which I have no trouble getting up for because I feel a great obligation to the people in the morning. But if I didn't have that, I wouldn't do it. You know, it's a kind of, a kind of thing. So you have to be cunning with yourself. You have to, <laughs> to figure out what is that? What it is that will actually get you to do it, 
and then put that into place so that you get yourself to actually do it. Uh, because then you, you do it and you get the benefit of doing it, even, even though the constant resistances to doing it uh, are still present. I am still a night person. I, I begrudge every single morning. <laughs> anyway. What is it that moves you? Sensual desire, renunciation. Can you let go of some of that so that you can have the benefits of practice? Do you practice enough so that you notice a benefit from the practice and does that benefit then become something that reinforces practice? And what is the main reason that you stop practicing? What do you think? In my role as a meditation mentor, often the thing that prevents people from practicing most often is that the practice brings them into touch with themselves and there's an aspect of themselves that they're so uncomfortable with that they want to get away from it. And so that's the thing that prevents them from practicing. Uh, they think that if they stop practicing that it will recede again and that they won't have to be close to it. But then they find that they're less happy. And when the, the less happiness intensifies, to the point that they can't bear that anymore, they come back into practice, and so there's this swaying in and out of practice that happens. And so what I would recommend that you do is that you you don't stop practicing, but that you adjust the type of practice that you have so that you can come in and out of uh, the difficulty in practice. It's a kind of heating up and cooling down which is a kind of integrated metta-vipassana practice. This highly concentrated metta practice that I like to teach uh, can act as a refuge. You can, you can move into a concentrated metta practice, which is very blissful. So that when you, when you find that the vipassana practice becomes too uncomfortable, uh, you can withdraw from the vipassana practice but not stop practicing and you can withdraw into a kind of uh, refuge of metta practice that's very blissful. You can come into a rebalancing in that place and then move back into the, the vipassana practice. If you can develop a strongly concentrated uh, metta practice, it gives you really great confidence in being able to move into the Vipassana practice because you know that any time the Vipassana practice becomes too uncomfortable that you, you have a ready way of moving out of the discomfort into something that's very settling, very balancing. If you practice in a way that you don't have that sense of uh, uh, a skill at believing the difficulty of Vipassana practice, then it can make you very timid in, in your adventure into Vipassana practice. And so you'll move uh, with trepidation in the Vipassana practice. So it may actually be uh, of a greater benefit to spend the time in the beginning of, of the practice in developing the, the concentrated states in metta practice first. And then when you have a real sense of security and being able to uh, come into a, a 
a comfortable state of being in metta practice than to push um, into the Vipassana side of practice. So, and, uh, I've always been teaching uh, the, the metta Vipassana uh, and, and teaching it in, in a, as a kind of divided practice. Um, and uh, a couple of summers ago on retreat, uh, what I was noticing was that when I was recommending to people that when their Vipassana was getting too hot, that they back out into the metta practice, they didn't have adequate skill in the metta practice to, to cool down their Vipassana practice. And so I'm, I've reorganized the way that I'm teaching retreat so that there's four or five days at the beginning of the retreat where we just do metta. So they can really develop the skill of a highly concentrated metta practice. And so this summer, uh, at the retreats that I've been teaching, we've been doing five days of metta at the beginning of the retreat. And what was so surprising to me was that the, the usual reports of people's vipassana overheating in the middle of the retreat that then needed a lot of attention didn't happen. They didn't happen on either retreat. Not a single report of people overheating. They, they just backed out into metta when it got too much and moved back in to the vipassana when they rebalanced. Um, there was an initially, in the beginning of it, some question about whether this could be uh, uh, construed as a, a spiritual bypass, that, there, that, there, there were, that you're moving around the difficulty, but there's never an inten- intention in this way of designing practice to move around any difficulty. It's a way of regrouping and then being able to move strongly back into the difficulty. I think often, uh, particularly when you talk about concentration practices and blissful practices, some people find the idea that we'll just come into the bliss and we'll stay here forever. Um, it's you know, it's really as effective as heroin. <laughs> In the long run, you're just strung out. <laughs> Nothing happens. So, all right. Hmm? What's your idea? My, my idea is that um, in, in, a, in a somewhat meditative place, the thoughts activate a, um, a type of anxiety in me mm-hmm. that um, you know, results in overheating. And if I'm in that state, if I'm able to calm my mind and refocus, it goes away. Or in, in You know, there's um, a number of things that can happen. In listening to your description, what I what I think I'm hearing is that you touch into, say, a somaticized emotional experience, which which begins to release, and the intensity of the release uh, is emotionally dysregulating, and then the mind flips on one of the skill sets that you, one of the storylines that you have for regulating experience and so it drives a story that generates a masking emotional experience and so you have that 
intense emotional experience that's been driven it's driven by thinking and then if you can come back into a state of equanimity of course the mind will shut down that aspect and that aspect of the emotional experience will fall away is that kind of matching what you're saying so that's a fairly ordinary experience it's very typical that uh, you come into an, an experience in the body and that there's a big release of emotion and that if you can't uh, find equanimity with that, that the, bo- the body-mind will begin to regulate itself in, in the habitual way that you do it. If the mind is using afflictive emotion, it, will, it can generate very intense experiences that way. Um, if you can't find equanimity like you did, the mind will continue to generate the very intense experiences, and that would be a kind of overheating. Then what I would recommend you do is pull into the metta practice to cool everything down again. Pretty much exactly that. So let's do some practice. Let's start with a, a little bit of metta to, to concentrate and then we can do some see, hear, feel. And I think that maybe what we'll do is some double noting tonight. So see, hear, feel is a technique where we're, we're trying to broadly uh, separate basic sensing experiences into uh, basic sensing experiences. So any visual experience, so uh, external sight or internal visual experience, the mental screen where you see memory <coughs> planning fantasy, uh, most people centered around the eyes, the visual aspect of the outline of the body, the visual aspect of the body's location in the current environment, the image reaction to local sensation in the body, the image reaction to exterior sound, Everybody familiar with those aspects of visual experience? If not, ask. I'll try and explain it. All of those will categorize as C experience. So doing a noting practice in a Mahasi style noting, you, if your attention is drawn there, you note it. So you know that you're in C experience. You soak in and have an awareness of the sensing experience. And then you create an auditory label C. So you say the word C to yourself in the mind. If you're aware of an exterior sound, if you're aware of internal auditory thinking, if you're aware of a subtle vibratory activity in the same space, so that would be inside the head between the ears or actually at the ears, that's here space, so you note that, so you know that you're in auditory thinking or you're in auditory experience, you soak into the sensing of the auditory experience and you create a a word here in auditory thinking space. That's the label. If your attention is drawn to a, a sensation in the body, gravity, temperature, respiration, circulation, digestion, the efforting to hold the posture or emotion, you note that that's where your attention is, you soak into the sensing of it, and you create the label feel in auditory thinking space. Is that clear, everybody? So we'll do a little bit of, uh, of that.
that flexible noting, it's called. Uh, individual occurrences, if more than one space is active at the same time, just choose one to, to focus on, doesn't matter which one. And then after 10 minutes or so, we're going to add a, a secondary note. And this is going to be Vedna, or feeling tones. So note the, the sensory clarity aspect of it, and then note whether you find the sensing experience itself pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So in noting the uh, sensing experience, we're not noting whether we find the content of the experience pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, but whether the actual sensing of it is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Does that make sense? So in hearing the sound of my voice, it isn't whether you find what I'm saying pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, but actually the sound of my voice, whether you find that pleasant, unpleasant, or um, as you're listening to the sound of traffic outside, it isn't whether it's a car or a truck or a motorcycle that's going by, but whether the actual sound is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Does that make any sense? So Vedna is the quality of the sensing experience, not what it is that's, not the content of it. So, uh, and I'll do, as we go along, a little bit out loud so you, you know what the cadence of the sensing is, or the cadence of the noting that makes sense to me, and then uh, figure it out for yourself, too. feel unpleasant? (laughs) (laughs) It's always been my opinion that they should let, just let them go. (laughs) (laughs) Especially at three o'clock in the morning. things about particularly upping the, the amount of bandwidth that you need to use in the, the noting practice is that it's so engaged that the, the sw- swiping of thoughts is harder to happen. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll add a triple note as well uh, soon. And it, it, it's much easier not to get lost when you're triple noting because you have so much to do. There's, there's no time for another thought to come in and get you. And how was the metta? Um, I don't remember the metta part. Mm. 
Good. <laughs> Someone else? Uh-huh. The, uh, the differentiation between um, <coughs> content and sensation in the wearing of brightness, like really make it concerted effort to keep in mind um, to make that distinction in voting is, was really useful. Oh, good. And the switch back Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is, you know, you, you think of yourself and you bring with you the mind state that you have associated with yourself most often. And then to kick it out and push in the metta, pretty soon, when you think of yourself, it comes with the mind state of metta. It's, it's really a, a great thing. And it's an interesting concept that it's not just the words, they're not fucking magic words, but they're right. placing the right condition I'm loving myself. Yeah. Totally. Uh-huh. When you think about the importance of the phrasing in the meta, so may I be peaceful versus you know I will be peaceful or I am peaceful. So I'm sitting with the Sayadaw in Myanmar and I say virtually the same question and he said, the phrases don't matter. And I say, what do you mean the phrases don't matter? <laughs> <laughs> The phrases don't matter. You can use, and I say, so I can use whatever phrases that I want, and he says, use, may I be peaceful. (laughs) 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 That lends like an element of somebody else. I thought that was hilarious. (laughs) what is interesting to me is in all of that the question of how easy is it for me to follow the rules (laughs) almost impossible (laughs) and then can you try the rules for a little bit and see what erupts out of that what big self big, ugly, pimply self arises <laughs> in having to follow the rules. Can you clarify something? Just um, in, um, in knowing uh, the feeling uh, part of that, uh, was the goal just somatic sensation or feel, feel space. We're really just trying to pull apart sensation. Ultimately, the investigation is, where is self? Notice it arising and passing. Excuse me. Noting conditioning. You know that it's a sea experience. You're conditioned to know that. Can you see the conditioning following? Uh, In some sense, Um, I was talking about that earlier, that can you see the room the way that that you see, which is basically colored dots, or do do you only see the conditioning where it's fixated into the solid? Can you hear the sound of my voice without the conditioning already attached to it so that you understand all of the words? 
that I say. Um, so conditioning, then there's the sense of self, is it there or not? There's the arising and passing, and then there's the unsatisfactoriness of it, right? All of those things. So in each thread, can you then further the investigation of all of those aspects of it in each moment, see all of that? That's really what Vipassana is about. And in knowing that there's no solid, intrinsic, ongoing experience of self that carries forward, that it's temporary, being free then from the need to maintain the illusion of it, that you know that everything arises and passes so that you can be free of needing to cling to anything. Nothing lasts, so there's nothing you can do to make it last. Nothing lasts, so there's nothing you need to do to prevent it from arriving. We, spend, we can spend a lot of energy into clinging to something and it's not going to last and there's nothing that we can do about it. So something we want arises and then as it begins to pass we put a lot of energy into trying to prevent it from passing and there's nothing we can do. Or something we don't want begins to arise and we put an enormous amount of energy into preventing it from arising but if we, if we could just be clear that it's going to arise and pass, we don't have to resist it so much. We can just follow the wave of it arising and passing and suffering. Those are the insight investigations that we want to come to. Old age, sickness, and death. Not much to do about that. I like to have a sense of humor about it. Um, it seems to make it easier. Uh, getting what you want. You know, you're going to lose it. So that in the getting what you want, you know that you're going to lose it, so there isn't that suffering that comes in the losing of it. Not getting what you want, a lot of times you don't get it. So that it doesn't take, it doesn't prevent you from trying to get it. You know, some people don't try because they might not get it. But there's the whole trying to get it, whether you get it or not, that's so engaging, so interesting, right? So you just deny yourself that because you're afraid that you won't get it. Putting up with things that you don't want. People don't go out of the house because they won't, don't want to put up with things they don't want. And then you don't go out of the house. Right? All of those things. <coughs> Have you noticed the subtle, ongoing irritation that nothing is exactly the way that you would have it? <laughs> and then that points you in the direction of not being in charge of anything? <laughs> Can you be with that? I was talking that. Do you ever find um, that you don't want to go, and then when you get there, you have a good time? Mm-hmm. That—that's this, right? What happens if the the not wanting to go overwhelms you, and you don't go? Then you don't have the good time. Right? So that's what all of this is. So thank you all for coming. Um, this is deepening your practice, so I'm going to be you know, advocating deepening your practice, and really the thing that I'm going to be advocating tonight is the last retreat of the year at ATS, which is the winter retreat I'm doing up at La Casa de Maria. It starts on December 26th. Um, it's going to be uh, five days of Vipassana, uh, sorry, of Metta, and then six days of Vipassana. 
Um, it's at a beautiful setting at La Casa de Maria in Montecito. Last year, an owl came and sat the whole retreat with us uh, <laughs> in a tree. An owl. <laughs> <laughs> The line was so well delivered. I can get it. <laughs> um, so take a look at that and see if you want to come. You can come for the first six nights or the second five nights or the, the other way around. Um, but if you haven't done retreat practice, this is a good place to come to. Uh, if you have, it's also a good place to come to. Um, very pleasant place to retreat. Um, it's on a 12-acre estate, and they have a big track, so it's a wonderful place to do walking meditation as well. I'm a big advocate of walking metta. So for the first first few days of the retreat, there's a lot of walking, and then we really sit down. The retreat schedule has um, a lot of, uh, for in the Vipassana side, I like to do duration sitting, so four hours sits in the afternoon during the Vipassana side, so you can really go deep. Um, and then uh, Joanna is doing a retreat with Mary Stan Cabbage for women only in Joshua Tree in J- January. Um, so I don't know whether the Dave, Dave Smith's uh, New Year's retreat is going to go now. Mm-hmm. I, I suspect it won't. So. Um, anyway, I'm also a big advocate of meditation centers. Um, the, the, the meditation path can often be quite challenging, and it's useful to have people that are also on the path that you can form relationships with, that you can travel with on the path to support you in your practice. And what better place to meet them than at a meditation center? So you can come over and over again, meet them, form a relationship with them so that they can help support you. I know it may seem like we're, we're always going to be here, but I can assure you that the finances of meditation centers are always precarious. And we do rely on you to be generous each time you come. The suggested uh, donation here is $15. And you kind of crunch the numbers and that's a good amount. But Really, the, the dana practice or generosity practice is a practice that's meant for you. It's a heart-opening practice. So if $15 doesn't mean that much to you, you should be giving it a level that, that has meaning to you. And if $15 is a good amount, you should be giving it that level. And if it's too much, you should be giving it a level that's appropriate to your resources. If you're not resourced, please feel free to come. We as a community are delighted to support the place for you to come to. We take cash and cards uh, over there. If you'd also be so kind as to put the chairs away and the cushions away, that's also appreciated. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.